It is so good to be here. I uh, I just want to tell you that I love you. Y'all know how I feel about you. I, I got a couple things I need to do before we get started. Number one is, let's talk about the Wild Game Supper. Now, I want you to see the Wild Game Supper for what it really is. Now, I think sometimes some of y'all think this is just that one time a year that them rednecks can wear camouflage to church. Or it may be the one time a year you can eat rabbit or quail or blackened rockfish. Let me tell you, let me tell you exactly what your wild game supper is. It is an evangelism opportunity. It is an opportunity for you to obey the Great Commission. Now let me let me give you a little different perspective of the wild game supper here at Clover Hill. I had a chance, I had the privilege of being at the very first one, I was a speaker. And I think there were about 600 guys here. But let me tell you, from the very first Wild Game Supper, now this is just my perspective. This doesn't count the guys who I've hugged their neck on the way in here that connected with this church because of the Wild Game Supper. This is just from a different perspective. Out of the very first Wild Game Supper that I was able to do here, out of that, I think I've been a part of it maybe five times, 31 wild game suppers have taken places, taken place at other churches. So I was here, and then there was somebody here that asked me to come there, and then that led to another one. And I'm telling you, it is an extremely conservative estimate to tell you that since that first wild game supper, out of the wild game suppers that have just opened up for me, over 500 people have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Can we give the Lord a big hand? <laughs> so whether you like to hunt and fish or not, that's not the issue. Buy a ticket and get it to somebody who does and get them here, especially if they're unchurched. They're going to eat the best wild game they've ever eaten in their life. They're going to hear a clear presentation of the gospel They may win a shotgun or a turkey call or a camouflage hat. There are going to be tons of stuff to be given away, but let's see it for what it is. It is a soul-winning opportunity. So I want you to invest, buy in, and help make it a tremendous success, okay? Second thing is, some of you have heard my hunting poem before and know that it kind of has been a big part of my life. Well, this happens to be the first Sunday morning. I I actually rewrote that poem and turned it into a children's book. And this is the first Sunday morning I've had it. They just came in. And I've got some out there. If you'd like to, if you got a kid that wants to be reminded of the first time they went to the woods with their dad, it's illustrated, got great pictures in it, and it's kind of the poem in a little different version. It's out there, and it'd be a blessing to me, so go stop by and and, and, and uh, help yourself to one of those, see one of those. Let's pray. Now, dear Jesus, we just ask for your will to be done in this church today. And for that to happen, it's got to be you, not us. We can't, we can't uh, just because the first two services have went great, we can't just assume that's going to happen here. Holy Spirit, you need to lead us. And, and, and this is a completely different crowd of people. And there are different needs in the room right now. So, Lord, just help us again. Help us again. Prove yourself faithful. And help us just to be obedient to your spirit. 
as we tell this simple little story this morning from the scripture that may help somebody who needs a little deliverance, a little breakthrough this morning. In your precious name we pray. And everybody said, if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. Now I'm kind of hard to follow because I'm really a storyteller more than I am a preacher. But I do want you to go back and double check what I say. I mean, it is scriptural. But I want to just share a little story with you. Uh, Exodus 14, verse 13 is where we're going to start out. But we got to go back and set the stage for what's happening. See, here's what's happened. In Exodus 14, the children of Israel have been released from bondage in Egypt. I don't mean an addiction, a hang-up, a challenge. We, we use words kind of loosely sometimes. These people were physical slaves. They were in physical bondage. They were enslaved. They were told when to go to bed, when to get up. They were fed just enough food to make them functional at work. They were 100 complete physical, spiritual slaves. And they've just been set free. And they're skipping across the desert. Can you imagine the praise services going on? Do you remember your greatest spiritual victory? How you felt? Can't you just see them, the praise service that they're having going across that desert? Do you realize there were people in that line that didn't know anything but bondage? They'd spent their whole life in chains, in bondage in Israel. I mean, excuse me, in Egypt. So as they're released, and it's kind of a funny story. I actually think it would make a great Netflix series. Are some of y'all hooked on Netflix? My kids make such fun of me because I watch Netflix all the time. But you know what I watch? Gunsmoke. I've watched all the Andy Griffiths. They were like, Dad, you didn't need to get Netflix. There's something called TV Land. Look into it. But wouldn't it make a great Netflix sci-fi series, the stories of those plagues, those ten plagues that got them released? Y'all, they're bizarre. Come on now, they're weird. I mean, one of my favorite ones is the frogs. Anybody remember the frogs, the second play? Now, you're probably thinking, well, there's just a lot more frogs than normal. No, frogs everywhere. I want you just to feel right now in your right armpit a frog, a big old nasty squishy swamp frog in your right armpit. I want you to picture Right now, back at your house, in your pillowcase, waiting on you, you could see him hopping. Is a big old nasty frog. They were everywhere. Now, I see some of you men. I know how you think. Some of you men are do-it-yourself rednecks. You try to fix stuff at your house, and you're thinking, I could find a way where there'd be an area with no frogs. I'd build a circle of fire. Or I'd have a thermos, and I'm telling you, you couldn't do it. Let me tell you the reason you couldn't do it. You couldn't kill frogs. The reason they couldn't kill frogs is because the frog looked like the Egyptian female goddess of fertility. So they thought if they squashed a frog, they'd never have kids again. There's frogs everywhere, and it's driving Pharaoh insane. So finally, he tells a lie. He tells the man of God, whatever we got to do to get these frogs out of here, we'll do. I mean, whatever it takes. And this is the dumbest answer in the entire scripture. Makes no sense. 
The man of God says, I went and asked God, and he says, he's going to release you from bondage. He's going to set you free. He's going to turn it loose. God wants to know, when do you want them gone? Does anybody remember Pharaoh's answer? Tomorrow. Now, y'all, what would have been your answer? Yeah, yesterday, wouldn't it? Why would you spend one more night with the frogs? Y'all, that doesn't make any sense. But you know what? I see people do that consistently. I see God ready to set them free from something, and they want to put it off. They say, I'll I'll take one more night with the frogs. But we know that the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, kind of was what tipped the scales, and the children of Israel have been set free. Now, we know that they are in God's will, and the reason that we know they're in God's will, because if you read the story, God's got a sign out in front of them guiding them. It's cloud. So step by step, minute by minute, day by day, they're in God's will. It's not like they got out in the desert and turned on God or that they chose selfish or that they built some idol to Baal. They are set free and in God's will, following him step by step. And they look up and they're at the edge of the Red Sea and Pharaoh has changed his mind and the Egyptian army is behind them. And their praise turns to panic. Now, we ought to be a little bit understanding of this because I don't know about you, but if I can just be transparent with you this morning, if we can just kind of put down our spirituality and just be honest one with another, I have no problem with the consequences that come to me when I choose selfish. And I do. I try not to, but sometimes I just do the selfish thing. I have no trouble with the consequences from that decision. I feel like I got that coming. Or when I do something dumb. Or when I get ahead of God. But can I just be transparent with you this morning, church? I get highly frustrated with the Lord when I'm following the cloud. When I'm in His will. When I'm trying to do it the right way. And you look up and here comes the Egyptian army. There may be somebody in the service this morning that's a little upset with God. Because you'd say, to be honest with you, Lee, when I really got intense with God and really started trying to do things the right way is when things seem to go wrong. And you don't understand it. And when that praise turns to panic, here's what happened. Israel turned on Moses. They thought Moses was a part of some scam. Here's what they asked him. They said, Moses, were there not enough graves in Egypt? Did you lead us out here just so we wouldn't have to die? So they wouldn't have to dig graves so we'd die in the desert? Then they asked him this. They said, why didn't you just leave us alone? Didn't we tell you it would be better to be a slave in Egypt than to die in the desert? Now, church... Can we consider to go back to the things Jesus Christ has set us free from? Can we consider to go back to the things that Jesus drug across up a hill and bled to death to buy our freedom from? 
we cannot go back. They're, they're saying we would have been better off if we'd have never been set free. Praise has turned to panic. They're upset with Moses. They're scared. In Exodus 14, 13, here's what Moses tell them. He says, do not be afraid. That's deep, isn't it? Isn't that highly theological? Don't be afraid. Now, how can you not be afraid when you got a sea in front of you and the Egyptian army closing down behind you? That'd be like me telling some of y'all not to worry. Some of y'all are professional worriers. Raise your hand if you're the designated warrior for your family in the church this morning. Raise your hand if you don't have to worry because mama worries enough for all of us. Some of you have been set free for worry because your family has a worrier that will worry for everybody. How do you tell the worrier not to worry? How do you tell the person in fear not to fear? Well, let me ask you a couple questions. Number one, are you praying wrong? What makes us turn on God? When praise goes to panic, what makes us turn on God? Let me ask you a question. Are you praying wrong? See, we, we've kind of put a cute little hallmark feeling to it. We, we call it a quiet time. I'm not against quiet time. I have a quiet time every day. I am not against devotion. If anybody goes out of this church and says that I have bigly has said he's against devotional time, then I'm going to put a curse on you and all your babies are going to be born butt naked. I am not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I am going to tell you this. Do you really believe that as far as we're supposed to get in our prayer life with our Lord and Savior Jesus is an 11-minute quiet time? Because at the edge of the sea, quiet time ain't going to get you there. Listen, some of your quiet times ain't even quiet. Some of you got worship music plugging in your ear. I'm for worship music. I love worship music. Some of you quiet times you're trying to do it on a device. And you get about a minute into your devotion and your third cousin sends you a picture of grandma's banana pudding. Just wrecks you. I want you to quit thinking of it as a quiet time and listen to me. I want you to designate somewhere in your house, your life, I want you to designate a quiet place. And I want you to start praying right. And when I say praying right, I want you to start praying more. I took Greek in Bible college, hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I studied, I tried, and I want you to know I finished with a very solid low C. I did. I brought that C to the house. It was tough. It was a tough class. See, this is before the Internet, and they would teach us to exegete these scriptures, and the first time you do it, it's tough. And the scripture that was assigned to me that I was assigned to do that semester was the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And after 90 days and intense study, to put it in a way of an actor that we all understand, here's what that scripture means. The desperate and focused prayer of people who are striving to be like Jesus wins. 
I'm not against your quiet time. I'm joining you in your quiet time. I have a quiet time, but I'm telling you, when when the Egyptians are behind us, and for us to grow in God, we got to have more than a seven-minute quiet time. We have got to learn to play desperate, and we have got to learn to pray focused, and we have got to learn to be strategic in our prayer life. For your kids, for your children to make it through middle school and high school and maintain their relationship with Jesus Christ, we've got to pray desperate, focused, strategic prayers. we got to pray more. Let me ask you this. Are you praying wrong? You say, what do you mean? Are you praying in your prayer? Do you tell God how to deliver you? Because God knows more about delivering you than you know about delivering you. I'm listening to people pray sometimes, and they're telling God what to do. Moses said, don't be afraid Stand firm. Now, y'all, I'm taking a little liberty this morning, but if you'll study it, I think you'll come to the same conclusion that I've come to. Really, what he's saying is, don't be afraid and shut up. Can I ask you a question? How can God speak to you if you never shut up? If it's never quiet? We were engineered and designed to have a few minutes of absolute quiet. I told the Lord one time, I'm going to do that in my car. I'm going to keep the radio off and I'm going to focus you. And the Lord said, no, you're not. He said, your sermon prep ain't going to count. Your driving to a gig ain't going to count. I want a designated, sacred, quiet place. Not a place of convenience not a place that works into your schedule. I want a sacred place for you to meditate and for me to talk to you. I'm not saying God don't ever talk to me driving down the road. He does. And I begin to pray an agenda. Every Christian in this room should have a prayer agenda that you pray over your family. And it's a little more than just the quiet time. It's a quiet place. And we don't tell God how to deliver us. They said, Moses, wouldn't we have been better? Are there not enough graves in Egypt? Wouldn't we have been better? And Moses said, don't be afraid, stand firm. And then he said, you will see the deliverance of the Lord today. So I guess what I'm telling you, if you've come in here this morning and you're in a difficult spot, is quit telling God how to deliver you and start Allowing and watching God deliver you. You know, if they'd have interviewed the Israelites on the edge of the sea, if they'd have said, okay, everybody line up, we want to hear everybody's opinion. How do you think God is going to do this? How many Israelites do you think would have said, here's what's going to happen? Moses is going to go to the edge of the sea and he is going to hold up a stick. And when he does, the sea is going to part. And when the sea parts, the gap in the sea, the floor is going to be dry. And the Israelites are just going to walk across. 
And when the last Israelite steps up on the other side, we're going to lure the Egyptians onto the path. And when the Egyptians get out there halfway, the sea is going to swallow them up. How many Israelites do you think would have said that's what God was going to do? Zero. Because it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. Nobody would have thought that's how God was going to do it. Doesn't even make sense. Anyway, what happened to the water? How does a sea part? What does it turn to? Jello? Did the sea become gelatin? Now, we all know who grew up in the deep south that it wasn't jello. Because we know the only way to turn jello that has jelloed back to liquid is to run it through your front teeth like this. Doesn't the scripture say that he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or think? Don't you think God's got a plan on how to deliver you? Don't you think God's got a better strategy on how to save your marriage than you got? Don't you think God's got a better business plan for your business than the one you got? Don't you think God can set you free better than you can set you free? Because it's true. Listen, I'll be honest with you. You can deliver yourself. You can. You can grit your teeth and deliver yourself. You're just not as good. I mean, Moses killed an Egyptian. Them were not the first Egyptians Moses buried. He buried an Egyptian one time. He saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew, snapped, killed him, buried him. Couldn't hide one Egyptian. I don't know if he left a big toe sticking up or, you know, if he did CSI, DNA. I don't know what happened. Could not bury one Egyptian when he did it. When God did it, he buried the entire Egyptian army. See, when God delivers us, it's a lot better than when we deliver ourselves. Really, the next part is the most beautiful part of the scripture to me. He said, don't be afraid. Stand firm. He said, you're going to see the deliverance of the Lord today. But then this is what he says. He says, the Egyptians that you see today you will never see again is there anybody in church this morning that would say Lee I've got some Egyptians in my life that I just assume not ever ever see again well then you've got to pray desperate and focused prayer and you've got to allow God to deliver you in his plan, in his way and in his time some of you have called to heaven and ordered a microwave and God has sent you a crock pot and you're upset
when I think about powerful stories of God, I can't help but go back to my teenage years. I think about Superman. Now, y'all, this culture has ruined Superman. They've rewritten 55 stories. They got Superman fighting Batman. Y'all, Superman would not fight Batman when I grew up as a kid. They were buddies. They were not trying to kill each other. They got Superman wearing black. I mean, it's just crazy. Some of y'all are a little older than me. And when you think about Superman, you go back to that old black and white TV show when it says he can leap tall buildings in a single bound and he's behind a curtain jumping a cardboard box. But when I think about Superman, I go to 1980, my freshman year in high school. Christopher Reeve. Is there anybody in here that feels with me would say my Superman is the 1980 Christopher Reeve Superman? Give me a hand. Show me a hand if you're with me. That was Superman. Now what happened in 1980 Superman when the love of his life, Lois Lane, when praise turns to panic and she gets in trouble and she is in that car she has passed away. Does anybody remember what does Superman do to save her? Somebody help me. He flew around the world backwards and turned back time. Y'all, that's cheating. That's not creative writing. That's just cheating. You can't spin the world backwards just because it's the one you love. I think sometimes we forget when it comes to our deliverance that we serve a God who loves us and will spin the world backwards for us. He will part the Red Sea for us. He will allow His Son to be crucified for us. He will do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or think. He loves you. He wants you to be free. He wants to deliver you. He wants to bury the Egyptians in your life. The Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. He will cheat for you. He will spin the world backwards on your behalf.